Chapter 16 Existing and Developing Movements Which Are Contributory to the Open Conspiracy and Which Must Develop a Common Consciousness The Parable of Provender Island A suggestion has already been made in an earlier chapter of this essay, which may perhaps be expanded here a little more. It is that there already exist in the world a considerable number of movements in industry, in political life, in social matters, in education, which point in the same direction as the open conspiracy and are inspired by the same spirit. It will be interesting to discuss how far some of these movements may not become confluent with others and by a mere process of logical completion identify themselves consciously with the open conspiracy in its entirety. Consider, for example, the movement for a scientific study and control of population pressure known popularly as the birth control movement. By itself, assuming existing political and economic conditions, this movement lays itself open to the charge of being no better than a scheme of race suicide. If a population in some high area of civilization attempts to restrict increase, organize its economic life, upon methods of maximum individual productivity and impose order and beauty upon its entire territory, that region will become irresistibly attractive to any adjacent, festering mass of low-grade, highly reproductive population. The cheap humanity of the one community will make a constant attack upon the other, affording facile servility, prostitutes, toilers, hand labor, tariffs against sweated products, restriction of immigration, tensions leading at last to a war of defensive massacre are inevitable. The conquest of an illiterate, hungry, and incontinent multitude may be almost as disastrous as defeat for the selector race. Huh. Indeed, one finds that in discussion, the propagandists of birth control admit that their project must be universal or dysgenic. But yet, quite a number of them do not follow up these admissions to their logical consequences, produce the lines and continue the curves until the complete form of the open conspiracy appears. It will be the business of the early open conspiracy propagandists to make them do so, and to install groups and representatives at every possible point of vantage in this movement. And similarly, the now very numerous associations for world peace halt in alarm on the edge of their own implications. World peace remains a vast aspiration until there is some substitute for the present competition of states for markets and raw material, 
and some restraint upon population pressure. League of Nations societies and all forms of pacifist organization are either futile or insincere until they come into line with the complementary propositions of the open conspiracy. The various socialist movements, again, are partial projects professing at present to be self-sufficient schemes. Most of them involve a pretense that national and political forces are intangible phantoms and that the primary issue of population pressure can be ignored. They produce one woolly scheme after another for transferring the property in this, that, or the other economic plant and interest from bodies of shareholders and company promoters to gangs of politicians or syndicates of workers to be steered to efficiency, it would seem, by pillars of cloud by day and pillars of fire by night. The Communist Party has trained a whole generation of disciples to believe that the overthrow of a vaguely apprehended capitalism is the simple solution of all human difficulties. No movement ever succeeded so completely in substituting phrases for thought. In Moscow, communism has trampled capitalism underfoot for ten eventful years and still finds all the problems of social and political construction before it. But as soon as the socialist or communist can be got to realize that his repudiation of private monopolization is not a complete program, but just a preliminary principle, he is ripe for the ampler concepts of the modern outlook. The open conspiracy is the natural inheritor of socialist and communist enthusiasms. It may be in control of Moscow before it is in control of New York. The open conspiracy may achieve the more or less complete amalgamation of all the radical impulses in the Atlantic community of today. But its scope is not confined to the variety of sympathetic movements which are brought to mind by that loose word, radical. In the past 50 years or so, while socialists and communists have been denouncing the current processes of economic life in the same invariable phrases and with the same undiscriminating animosity, these processes have been undergoing the profoundest and most interesting changes. While socialist thought recited its phrases, with witty rather than substantial variations, a thousand times as many clever people have been busy upon industrial, mercantile, and financial processes. The socialist still reiterates that this greater body of intelligence has been merely seeking private gain, which has just as much truth in it as is necessary to make it an intoxicating lie. Everywhere, competitive businesses have been giving way to amalgamated enterprises, 
marching towards monopoly and personally owned businesses to organizations so large as to acquire more and more the character of publicly responsible bodies. In theory, in Great Britain, banks are privately owned and railway transport is privately owned, and they are run entirely for profit. In practice, their profit-making is austerely restrained and their proceedings are all the more sensitive to public welfare because they are outside the direct control of party politicians. Now this transformation of business, trading, and finance has been so multitudinous and so rapid as to be still largely unconscious of itself. Intelligent men have gone from combination to combination and extended their range year by year without realizing how their activities were enlarging them to conspicuousness and responsibility. Economic organization is even now only discovering itself for what it is. It has accepted incompatible existing institutions to its own great injury. It has been patriotic and broken its shins against the tariff walls. Its patriotism has raised to hamper its own movements. It has been imperial and found itself taxed to the limits of its endurance, controlled by antiquated military and naval experts, and crippled altogether. The younger, more vigorous intelligences in the great business directorates of today are beginning to realize the uncompleted implications of their enterprise. A day will come when the gentlemen who are trying to control the oil supplies of the world without reference to anything else except as a subsidiary factor in their game will be considered to be quaint characters. The ends of big business must carry big business into the open conspiracy just as surely as every other creative and broadly organizing movement is carried. Now I know that to all this urging towards a unification of constructive effort, a great number of people will be disposed to a reply which will, I hope, be less popular in the future than it is at the present time. They will assume first an expression of great sagacity, an elderly air. Then, smiling gently, they will ask whether there is not something preposterously ambitious in looking at the problem of life as one whole. Is it not wiser to concentrate our forces on more practicable things? To attempt one thing at a time, not to antagonize the whole order of established things against our poorest desires? To begin tentatively, to refrain from putting too great a strain upon people, to trust to the growing common sense of the world, to adjust this or that line of progress to the general scheme of things. Far better accomplish something definite here and there than challenge a general failure. 
That is, they declare how reformers and creative things have gone on in the past. That is how they are going on now, muddling forward in a mild and confused and partially successful way. Why not trust them to go on like that? Let each man do his bit with a complete disregard of the logical interlocking of progressive effort to which I have been drawing attention. Now I must confess that popular as this style of argument is, it gives me so tedious a feeling that rather than argue against it in general terms, I will resort to a parable. I will relate the story of the pig on Provender Island. There was, you must understand, only one pig on Provender Island, and heaven knows how it got there, whether it escaped and swam ashore or was put ashore from some vessel suddenly converted to vegetarianism. I cannot imagine. At first, it was the only mammal there, but later on, three sailors and a very small but observant cabin boy were wrecked there. And after subsisting for a time on shellfish and roots, they became aware of this pig. And simultaneously, they became aware of a nearly intolerable craving for bacon. The eldest of the three sailors began to think of a ham he had met in his boyhood, a beautiful ham for which his father had had the carving knife specially sharpened. The second of the three sailors dreamed repeatedly of a roast loin of pork he had eaten at his sister's wedding, and the third's mind ran on chitterlings, I know not why. They sat about their meager fire and conferred and expatiated upon these things until their mouths watered and the shellfish turned to water within them. What dreams came to the cabin boy are unknown, for it was their custom to discourage his confidences. But he sat apart brooding and was at last moved to speech. Let us hunt that old pig, he said, and kill it. Now it may have been because it was the habit of these sailors to discourage the cabin boy and keep him in his place. But anyhow, for whatever reason it was, all three sailors set themselves with one accord to oppose that proposal. Who spoke of killing the pig, said the eldest sailor loudly, looking round to see if by any chance the pig was within hearing. Who spoke of killing the pig? You're the sort of silly young devil who jumps at ideas and hasn't no sense of difficulties. What I said was am. All I want is just an am to go with my roots and sea salt. One am, the left am. I don't want the right one, and I don't propose to get it. I've got a sense of proportion and a proper share of humor. And I know my limitations. I'm a sound, clear-headed, practical man. Am is what I'm after. And if I can get that, I'm prepared to say quits and let the rest of the pig alone.
Who's for joining me in a left am? A simple, reasonable left am. Just to get one left am? Nobody answered him directly, but when his voice died away, the next sailor in order of seniority took up the tale. That boy, he said, will die of a swelled head, and I pity him. My idea is to follow up the pig and get hold of a loin chop, just simply a loin chop. A loin chop is good enough for me. It's feasible, much more feasible than a great am. Here we are. We've got no gun. We've got no wood of a sort to make bows and arrows. We've got nothing but our clasp knives, and that pig can run like hell. It's ridiculous to think of killing that pig. But if one didn't trouble him, if one kind of got into his confidence and crept near him and just quietly and insidiously went for his loin, just sort of as if one was tickling him, one might get a loin chop almost before he knew of it. The third sailor sat crumpled up and downcast with his lean fingers tangled in his shock of hair. Chitterlings, he murmured, chitterlings. I don't even want to think of the pig. And the cabin boy pursued his own ideas in silence, for he deemed it unwise to provoke his elders further. On these lines, it was the three sailors set about the gratifying of their taste for pork, each in his own way, separately and sanely and modestly. And each had his reward. The first sailor, after weeks of patient patience, got within arm's length of the pig and smacked that coveted left ham loud and good and felt success was near. The other two heard the smack and the grunt of dismay half a mile away. But the pig, in a state of astonishment, carried the ham off out of reach, there and then, and that was as close as the first sailor ever got to his objective. The roast loin hunter did no better. He came upon the pig asleep under a rock one day and jumped upon the very loin he desired. But the pig bit him deeply and septically and displayed so much resentment that the question of a chop was dropped forthwith and never again broached between them. And thereafter, the arm of the second sailor was bandaged and swelled up and went from bad to worse. And as for the third sailor, it is doubtful whether he even got wind of a chitterling. And from the start to the finish of this parable, the cabin boy, pursuing notions of his own, made a pitiful made a pitfall for the whole pig. But as the others did not help him, and as he was an excessively small, though shrewd, cabin boy, it was a feeble and insufficient pitfall, and all it caught was the hunter of chitterlings who was wondering distraught. After which the hunter of chitterlings became a hunter of cabin boys, and the cabin boy's life for all his shrewdness, was precarious and unpleasant. He slept only in snatches and learned the full bitterness of insight misunderstood.
When at last a ship came to Provender Island and took off the three men and the cabin boy, the pig was still bacon intact and quite gay and cheerful, and all four castaways were in a very emaciated condition, because at that season of the year shellfish were rare and edible roots were hard to find, and the pig was very much cleverer than they were in finding them and digging them up, let alone digesting them. From which a parable it may be gathered that a partial enterprise is not always wiser or more hopeful than a comprehensive one. And in the same manner with myself in the role of that minute but observant, excuse me, of that minute but observant cabin boy, I would sustain the proposition that none of these movements of partial reconstruction has the sound common sense quality its supporters suppose. All these movements are worthwhile if they can be taken into the worldwide movement. All in isolation are futile. They, were, they will be overlaid and lost in the general drift. The policy of the whole hog is the best one, the sanest one, the easiest, and the most hopeful. If sufficient men and women of intelligence can realize that simple truth and give up their lives to it, mankind may yet achieve a civilization and power and fullness of life beyond our present dreams. If they do not, frustration will triumph, and war, violence, and a driveling waste of time and strength and desire, more disgusting even than war, will be the lot of our race down through the ages to its emaciated and miserable end. For this little planet of ours is quite off the course of any rescue ships, if the will in our species fails. End of chapter 16